So, 8.03. Here are some questions. Should someone who first joined the military as a male be allowed to continue serving as a career soldier after having sex change surgery? What about a transgender student being accepted to a women's college? Pound 1013 for 51 per message if you'd like to answer these questions, which are challenging Korean society lately. The latter more recently after a student who'd been accepted to Sungyong Women's University's law school had to withdraw due to harassment and hate speech. Megan Nanny, visiting lecturer in the Smith College Department of Sociology, who co-chairs the Sociologist for Trans Justice, Advancing Trans, Non-Binary and Intersex Scholarship Committee, joins us on the line for further discussion. Thank you for taking the time. Hello, thank you for having me. We really wanted to get this U.S. comparison, as the U.S. has many more years of experience in dealing with this issue than than us here in South Korea. Uh, In fact, when that military case came along recently, I think there was confusion among many people. Uh, In the United States, can you just tell us exactly who would be identified as transgender? Yeah, well, that is actually a very complicated question um, because transgender in the United States is conceptualized as an umbrella category that includes multiple identities that could be trans women, trans men, non-binary people, genderqueer, agender. And so really anyone who uses the label or who is labeled as transgender is basically someone whose gender identity does not match with the one that is assigned with them at birth. It does not necessarily mean that they have to undergo legal or medical requirements, although in many other cases, in order to access um, life resources, they do have to undergo those additional steps in order to be legally or medically recognized. It's it's interesting um, from a legal and medical point of view, because even during the conversation around COVID-19, this coronavirus outbreak, there's been a discussion of how men and women biologically react differently and how men actually might be more susceptible. And, and, and in other words, in daily conversations, we are talking about gender differences, which would presumably make people who identify as transgender feel perhaps like they're being left out of that conversation. And how much... Or how loud should that voice be, though, in a media organization? Um, I think it really depends. In cases where it is relevant or where it can be relevant, if we're talking about sexual assault or harassment, for example, or talking about murder and other forms of violence and unemployment, these things drastically impact transgender people because of their identity as a transgender person. In other instances where it's not necessarily so relevant, yes, they still need to be included as part of the as part of the conversation, but at the same time, it might not necessarily be what is the most salient identity that's being talked about in the moment. Right, because as you mentioned, just a few of the classifications within this general area, it would be quite complex in society to kind of go through a long list, uh, especially as in this profession of of radio, we try to kind of keep the introductions as brief as possible. Um, (laughs) But but like one other thing is um, some of these classifications would be quite personal, like, for example, sexual orientation. We we shouldn't, I don't think, feel the need to... um, talk about that in every conversation but but something like um uh 
someone who's gone through an operation, for example, that goes beyond just a, a sense of um, inclination or personal feeling into an area of clear biology because you've altered your biology. Uh, is that where where it becomes much more socially and legally relevant, do you think? For example, entering a women's college, where would the line be? Um, well, I think it also depends on the women's college. In the United States context, um, while there are 27 women's colleges that openly have policies for transgender applicants, these policies vary very uh, widely across institutions. Some require medical intervention where others don't. And so when we're talking about biology and sex-affirming surgeries, it, like you said, it really depends on the context. And in many cases, that is where a lot of the anxiety and the backlash comes in in the context of gender-segregated or gender-selective environments is the idea of biology because of an anxiety around, um, honestly, around the presence of a phallus and hypothetical threats of a sexual assault. There's also something quite permanent about a, a sex change operation, whereas someone who is dressing as an opposite gender, identifying with an opposite gender, but who hasn't gone through that surgery, they might change their mind. I'm not saying they would, and I'm not saying it's helpful even for me to say that, but the, in the mind of critics, that possibility remains there, and it, they, they might feel that someone might even exploit the women's college system. That is an argument that I hear often in my research, but the reality is, in most cases, an under... In order to undergo sex reassignment surgery, there are so many hoops and barriers that trans people have to go through, many of which um, marginalized communities, whether that be based on income or race or other, other forms of identity, can't access this. So, for example, in the United States, there are a number of states that require um, transgender people in order to access sex reassignment surgery to have undergone um, therapy for two years and to have medical diagnoses as gender dysphoric um, by two different therapists and then undergo another year-long process of hormone therapy. And so it's a continual process. And so the argument that someone's going to change their mind is honestly a straw man's argument because it takes so much time and so much effort and so much vetting upon someone's personal identity that that's just likely not the case. Yeah, and I, I, it's not an argument I necessarily would make very strongly myself, especially as I can't imagine going through those hoops just to get into a women's college. Um, but, but, but what happened with um, the case of Smith College, where, where you are based uh, as a visiting lecturer, as I yes. mentioned before? There was a big case in 2013, yes. wasn't there? There was. So in 2013, a applicant, so she was a um, high school senior at the time um, at, in the United States, that's around the age of 17 to 18, um, and she identifies as a trans woman. She applied to Smith College and had been in communication with the admissions office prior to her application about how do I apply as a trans woman um, and they had communicated a series of options to her, and she had chosen the one that worked well with her. And they rejected her application twice. 
The first was because of a mishap on the on the part of her um, her guidance counselor who used the wrong pronouns for her, but they gave her the opportunity to get that revised and resubmitted. But ultimately, her her application was rejected again because of her financial aid form, which is an optional form in the United States where if students need assistance to pay for um, pay for higher education, that uh, on her form they ask for legal sex, and her legal sex is male or was male at the time, and so she had to mark M. Although on the form itself it states that the only reason why they ask for her legal sex is for purposes of selective service. So making sure that she signs up for the draft based on her legal identity. And so there's a complication in the case of Calliope Wong in Smith College because it was an optional form that if she had the access to financial resources where she could have paid for college without um, governmental help, her application would have been considered just like any other applicant. But it was that one form that outed her as trans. What kind of policies are there to prevent discrimination against minorities on campus, though, today? Yes. So there's lots of different policies. And once again, it varies school by school. But generally speaking, there's at least a basic level where schools, um, gender selective colleges have some form of admissions policies. More schools have them than not, where at least trans women are admissible to the colleges. They also, during students' enrollments, have policies regarding how they'll support them, whether that be in terms of housing, in terms of um, athletics, uh, how which restrooms they're able to access, most of which are considered gender-neutral restrooms on campuses. There's also other accesses to resources like um, trans-affirming health care and access to hormone therapy on campus. There's support groups and um, as well as student organizing groups on campus. Yeah, I mean, something that occurs to me as you're talking about this, and it's quite an obvious point to make, um, but perhaps some of us don't give it enough thought, is that somebody of university admission age has only just recently left their childhood, in a sense, and, uh, and, and would not necessarily have time to have gone through uh, all those hoops that we talked about before. Uh, they, they might still be coming to terms <laughs> with their identity as well um, exactly it's very difficult um so the another aspect that i i'm kind of curious about especially as i've seen it come up here in korea among ardent feminists who are very wary of men who say they are women what would you say to that friction yeah well one i would at the base level as a scholar i would say that there is always more than just one type of feminism. There are multiple feminisms. And so the feminists that are against trans women's inclusion are just one facet of feminism. Um, In the United States, they're often called gender critical or trans exclusionary feminists. Now, I believe in a feminism that is inclusive of trans women because at the basic level, trans women are women. Um, They are women in the sense that that is their identity and that is their gender identity, and so they are included in the purview of feminism in terms of battling gender inequality more broadly. And so I, I would say at the most basic level that tr- feminism includes trans women, and so if these colleges are feminist colleges, they should include trans women. 
that being said, I also believe that um, in in the context of uh, the feminists that argue against trans women's inclusion, the root of their argument is that they don't believe that these people are women because of the presence of their biology. And so there's there's a conflation between the idea idea of biological sex assigned at birth and then someone's gender identity. Trans women aren't coming to these colleges because they're pretending to be women to become violators. They aren't coming to these colleges because they're pretending. They're calling to these colleges because they want to be affirmed in their gender identity because they believe in the mission of these colleges. And I believe that is what the mission of feminism should be and is. What about those who feel uncomfortable with it? How how should they uh, be responding, either legally or or emotionally? What what's your advice to them? Even I mean, I, I guess if we want to try to prevent friction, we have to try to understand why people might feel uncomfortable sharing a, a bathroom or or even just using a pronoun that doesn't seem natural to them. Yeah, and I think a large part of this just comes down to a basic level of education. A lot of people are thrown into these situations without being informed, without having access to resources. And that's not just transgender people, that's people in general. And so understanding what gender is and how gender operates in everyone's life, I think is a central facet. So everyone, at least in the United States, uh, pronouns are a very big use in our language. And so understanding, okay, those are your pronouns, how do I understand someone else's pronouns? How do I use these in practice? And that's what it comes down to is a matter of practicing. Um, one thing that I had to learn with uh, what are called neo-pronouns, which are um, pronouns like zizim or here, um, I, I looked in a mirror and I would, or I would look at different objects around my room and I would practice using those pronouns with those objects. And when I mess up, I, I apologize, and I say, thank you for catching my mistake. Here, let me try that again. Mm. It's a matter of practice and recognizing that while I might not necessarily understand it because it is not my lived experience in some aspects, it is someone else's experience, and it's not my place to determine whether or not their gender is right or wrong. Well, certainly, this is something that's challenging many people's idea of of their own reality, the, the idea that gender is something that, that, that may be fluid. Um, a, a final question, though. Given that this is a, something at a minority level, um, I guess by its very nature, is it um, important not to allow it to, to seem as though it's engulfing every area of life? I suppose it comes back to what we started with in this conversation. I think some of the critics get riled up because they feel like it's occupying a greater proportion of of public conversation than the reality of the situation. Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, gender is ingrained in every aspect of our life, whether whether or not we recognize it, whether or not we see it. Um, we experience gender in many different ways. That being said, I think... There has been a push to more overtly recognize gender and have these conversations. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think by having these conversations, we're bringing new identities into light and we're finding new ways to support people that otherwise didn't have a voice or didn't have a space to find themselves or feel that they could be themselves. 
in in our society. Yeah. That being said, I think when we have these conversations, we need to think about really what's at stake. And so is it inconvenient to have to learn new pronouns? Yes. But at the same time, what what is the consequence of learning new pronouns? You're supporting and affirming someone rather than putting them at risk, putting them at danger. And so it's weighing the pros and cons of it. Megan Nanny, sociology lecturer at Smith College, and, and for someone who uh, campaigns for trans justice, wherever our listeners stand on this issue, I think it's very heartening to hear from someone who, who doesn't... Uh, seem nearly as judgmental as, as some people are on both sides of this debate. And, and it, that's where the conversation seems to go sour very quickly when, when they start arguing from the very word go. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day.